Hello everyone. What you're about to listen to is an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode originally aired October 18th, 2013, and features a discussion between myself and Sean Comer focusing heavily, exclusively, given the title, on the classic universal movie monsters. Uh, Their iconic Frankenstein... Bela Lugosi's Dracula, of course Dracula being public domain isn't exclusively universal, but we focus on that iteration. Uh, The Wolfman, The Invisible Man, The Mummy, just all of these very, very classic uh, monster films. And we we have a pretty good discussion about it, so I I hope you'll enjoy the show uh, once it gets going. Before it does, however, I am obligated, uh, mostly via contract, to tell you to please like, comment, subscribe, give us a star rating, give us a written review. Anything that you can do in that respect to help the podcast uh, is greatly appreciated. We also have a couple of people, uh, companies who are sponsoring all of us here at the W2M Network, and we are very, very grateful for them. So let's get started with Amazon Music. If you like music, and really, who doesn't? Amazon Music Unlimited has over 70 million songs that you can listen to ad-free when you're part of their service. Now, the great news for you, listener, we are offering you a free 30 days of that particular service. The link in the description below reads getamazonmusic.com slash W2M network, and if you use that link, you can get a free 30 days of the Amazon Music Unlimited service. This will allow you access to their entire catalog of songs, podcasts, and anything else they happen to have there. It's uh, a great It's a really great service. At the end of 30 days, if you want to keep it, you can start paying for it. If you decide it was nothing but a wonderful summer experience, whatever time of year you happen to do it, doesn't really matter, the metaphor holds, then you've lost nothing and you've gained a valuable experience. So please click on that if you're so inclined to help us out, fill out the little form they give you, and that will send you, and that will let them know that we sent you there. Also helping us out here is Grammarly. For you listeners of the W2M Network, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you, yes you, write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. And really, if it saves you embarrassment on social media, it's worth it. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network to download Grammarly for free. There's a link to that as well in the description down below. If, you're, if you think you can benefit at all from its use, I would encourage you to do so. Helps them, helps us, helps you. We all win. So rare you find that these days, but we all can win. All right, on that note... We throw it back to myself circa 2013, talking with Sean Comer about a bunch of classic villains, movies, and stories. Take it away, past me. When the devil is too busy and death a bit too much, 
special touch. To the gentleman, I'm misfortune. To the ladies, I'm surprised. But call me by any name. Welcome to Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, the currently weekly podcast where we delve into all of the villains and all of their tricks, their trades, the fun things, the things you love about them, the things that make you unable to look away even though you occasionally wish for their gruesome death. Because that makes life live worth living, folks. If there's not, If you don't have someone who you are aware of, personally or just you're aware of in the sense that everyone knew who Osama bin Laden was, that you can wish death upon. You know, I, I don't think you're living. I mean, come on, people, get some hate going. Just a little bit. It adds variety. Spice. It's important. I am your host, Robert Winfrey, and it's still the month of October, which means we're still doing horror villains here on Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. And since we're doing horror villains, that means I'm bringing Sean Comer back, and I'm very happy to do so. He's always good fun to have on the sh- to have on these shows, and his presence seems to get me a few more hits every now and then. So, hey, that's all good. Sean, how you doing? And welcome back. I swear, before Tuesday night, I'm going to find a copy of the Hellraiser theme, so you don't try to open the show with with the Halloween theme again. <laughs> I won't. I won't. I'll find it. I'll I'll, Robert, I'll get that taken care of. Speaking of which, Robert, do you realize how hard it is to try to in- to try to watch? The Wolfman and Frankenstein and Dracula through the tears induced by trying to get through Hellraiser 8. I I believe I can appreciate your pain there. I, well, we're obviously going to get into this more on Tuesday night, but my God, it's worse than I remember. <laughs> yes, I, yes it is. I, uh, I want to apologize for calling Hellraiser 5 Hellraiser in name only. It's true. And, and at least Inferno wasn't didn't go with the whole ha ha it was one big drug induced hallucination womp womp oh yeah oh come on come on yeah yeah at least Inferno kept the spirit of Hellraiser more or less I mean you know we talked about how as a movie it's not it you know has deviations from what was kind of established by then but at the same time it at least still of Hellraiser uh we can we can thank the movies we're talking about today for the fact that I'm not rocking back and forth in a corner right now. Well, 
It's, I'm very glad of that, and I'm also glad you got to watch some good stuff so that you can save your what will only be the... Like, guys, che- uh, cheap plug early here. This coming Tuesday, I will be guest hosting The Long Road to Ruin again, finishing off the Hellraiser franchise, and Sean is one of the founding fathers of that series as well. I'm just in because I love Hellraiser and because Mark Radlich is taking a break from podcasting for the month of October. This Tuesday will be... I'm not even sure there's an adequate comparison. This Sean's streams of profanity and anger would be probably comparable to, like, the Yellowstone Caldera's eruption. I mean, th- this is going to be, like, world-ending. So please tune in for that. I, it, it'll be lots of fun. But tonight, as you mentioned, we're looking at some of the, class, the, the true classics of the horror genre. We're going way back to black-and-white, universal old-school, 60-minute runtime monster movies and all of the great memories that come with them. So let, let's kind of start off with with Dracula, because that's the big one. Now, I don't know, yes. Sean, or if anyone listening has heard. If you haven't, please go back to the archives, because it's a great show. But kind of concurrent with when The Long Road to Ruin had Mark's, uh, Mark Radlich's lovely and talented wife on to talk about the Twilight series in on long road to ruin that same couple of weeks here at everyone loves a bad guy i did vampires i did vampires one week and then dracula the next and i had pat mullen on for that and great fun was had by all but we talked a bit about bela lugosi's dracula and again i don't know if you've heard this or not but if you haven't go back through our archives it's still there when you get a chance listen to it i i very much enjoyed that one but it kind of an interesting side note uh, that was brought up there was Bela Lugosi, perhaps the definitive Dracula ever, played the role a grand total of twice. He played he played Dracula in the movie Dracula, and then he only became Dracula again for the comedy Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. So here you have the definitive Dracula, more or less, played the role twice. And that is just a testament to how good Bela Lugosi was playing the Count, for my money. So... Kind of going and, and from that, Sean. The as, as, as good as he as good as he was, as great an actor as he showed himself to be, the amazing thing is, other <laughs> with the possible exception of Plan Nine from Outer Space, for every single wrong reason, there is not probably one other movie that he starred in that most people could name off off the top of their heads except Dracula. That's very true, and. Like you said, it's kind of sad because he was great in a bunch of other movies. I mean, I very much enjoyed him in White Zombie. And, folks, there's a movie, White Zombie, stars Bela Lugosi. Uh, he was in a one that was in color, kind of an odd little one, where he played a hypnotist and wasn't the villain called uh, Scared to Death that I very much enjoyed as well. I mean, he's been around. He did a lot of good stuff. It's just Dracula and, like you said, Plan 9 from Outer Space because it's quite possibly the worst movie ever. <laughs> Right up there. Well, it's, it's the worst, though, in that same bad way that people regard the room as one of the It's one of those that, you know, it's so it's so bad that you have to watch it just to say you've, it's that bad. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, the so, it's the so bad it's good show. So, yeah, it, there's, yeah, it, it falls that, into that, that category. That, that one is totally lovable as, as almost any Ed Wood movie. Yeah. Uh, I'll agree with that, but so to talk about the movie itself, uh, Dracula was 
I was surprised at kind of how fate. I didn't see the silent movie until after I'd actually read the novel, and I was surprised at how kind of faithful elements of it were, especially now, when you consider that not everything uh, elements of it. When you say you haven't seen the silent movie, are you saying? Oh, you not didn't the silent. The- I'm sorry, the black and white. Sorry, not the silent oh, version. Oh. Okay, I got you. I, I got you. I didn't. I hadn't seen the Bela Lugosi one until after I had read the novel. Ah, but I was. I there were elements that were. Uh, it's kind of odd because it makes for. It's still a movie that holds up as having decent atmosphere and being watchable, but at the same time, it's very different in a lot of ways from the novel and. Not to its detriment at, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So just kind of your your take on the Drac on Dracula in particular from the Universal franchise. You know, you're right. In tone, it really is. It really is very faithful to the novel. In terms of the novel being very, how do I want to put this? It's a very simple kind of horror. But as The Simpsons once pointed out, back then people were a little bit easier. <laughs> uh, they were, they were more easily frightened just by the the very implication, just the, the very general description that there was somebody in human form who was really a soulless monster who couldn't stand the sunlight, who would attack, who would attack you by nightfall and suck the blood from your neck and quite possibly make you a monster like him. Um, now... The difference being that the novel is written in the format of uh, the diaries and journals of Mina Harker, Jonathan Harker, and uh, 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 Dr. Van Helsing. If I recall oh, there's, correctly. There's not, oh, also, um, oh, I forget the other guy's name, but there's another. There's like, I think there's like three or four people whose journals, whose journal perspective we get throughout the course right. of the. But that's the way the story is told, but that's not quite the way the movie plays out because that was um that wasn't quite a narrative concept that had really been explored at that point. Uh, the movie that really brought back the whole journal narrative concept was actually Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Um, something like was it fifty, sixty years later? Yeah. It was a while. Yeah. Right. But this one was still adapted pretty well because it took most of the major events from the novel and really translated them pretty effectively to the point that you didn't really feel like you missed hey, anything. Hey, shut up. Beg your pardon? Not you. Sorry, I thought I covered the noise in the background. I apologize. I was not telling you to shut up. This was, I wind up, I wind up doing this in the living room of the house that I live in, and there's a lot of background noise at times, so occasionally I have to remind everyone else that I am doing something else. I apologize. I thought I covered the receiver enough so that it wouldn't get over the airwaves. So anyone else listening, Sean, I do apologize. That was not at all meant for you. <laughs> oh, no. That's, uh, that's okay. Easy, easy for me to forget that oftentimes my co-hosts live with other people, whereas I live alone. Shut up. Don't judge me. Um, but in any case... Uh, no, you really didn't feel like, if you'd read the novel first, you really didn't come away feeling like you'd missed anything, and everything comes across probably pretty close to the way you would have imagined. You would have imagined it, pretty close to what would have played out in your head. Really, that's the best thing you can say about uh, about any novelization, is it's just the way I would have imagined. Yeah, and 
sometimes that means deviating from the novel, from the source material. Uh, but again, that's a, another interesting topic for another podcast, as far as you know who, how well things can get translated. But you know, the Universal Dracula with Bela Lugosi, it still holds up, and it streams on Netflix, and I can still watch it and still enjoy the atmosphere, the score, the interactions between Dracula and Van Helsing, and a lot of credit for that particular pairing. Uh, the guy who played Van Helsing, I forget the actor's name, was uh, an old stage partner of Bela Lugosi's. They did theater together, so they had a lot of rapport already as actors with each other, and that transitioned very well into the relationship between Van Helsing and Dracula on screen. You know, one, one small thing that's worth bringing up is if you get a chance to watch this, um, there's actually a couple of versions available. The original, and I mean a couple of versions in the sense I'm about to explain, uh, the version okay. that's on Netflix has got the very limited original score in which you get, um, God, you know what? It, it's a shame for the muse, for one of the music guys on 411 Mania to be saying this, but it's, it's a, it's a very famous classical composition, and I can't remember the name of it. It plays over the credits in the beginning. And then I think you get a little bit of incidental music here and there, just a couple of quick singers throughout the movie. But you really don't get much else in terms of a soundtrack. It's, it's, very, it's very quiet. It's very spare in terms of sound. What somebody else unfortunately did at one point was they decided to remaster all the original footage and add a new and a completely new soundtrack, an original soundtrack by the Kronos Quartet conducted by Philip Glass. And you know what? I have to admit, having seen both, because we, we accidentally one year for Christmas got my dad what we thought was the version of Dracula he wanted and ended up actually getting him the version with the new score and he would complain about it every so often after that. Um, but it really does, uh, now that I'm old enough to have seen both movies, yeah, it, it really is kind of distracting. Um, it, it, the movie is a demonstration of the power of silence, or the power of less being more. And yes, I say that acknowledging fully and completely that Bela Lugosi chews in some scenery a few times. Oh, yeah, and... It, in the best possible way, I think, too. Yeah, you know, he, he bites it just hard enough. <laughs> like, uh, um, what, you know, what? what's another, like, it's seen chewing, but it's in the best, I mean, like Jack Nicholson is the Joker in the 1989 Batman type thing. Good comparison. Very good comparison. I mean, it, it's seen chewing, but it's the kind of seen chewing that you expect to see in those particular circumstances. Or, or you know... I would even go so far as to say as Robert England as Freddy Krueger in the first nightmare. Um, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. Actually, I, I would add to that. I would say the first and, and Wes Craven's new nightmare. Um, because those are the two movies where Wes Craven's direction really made a difference. Uh, but in this one, it, it, it's the little thing. It's, it's the points where the shot lingers just long enough on Bela Lugosi that wide-eyed, kind of subtle, hungry stare that, that, that draws you right in and just really makes it so, so very fast. You, um, you, you believe that he's thinking about eating someone at that point. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh completely. Absolutely. Um, 
you there's a saying in movies sometimes about people who can who can act through the makeup. Um, yeah. Uh, who can really kind of uh, kind of get across so much despite being caked in prosthetics, and they're able to do it with something like a little subtle twitch of the lip or a curl of a sneer or 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 just adjusting their eyes just so. Uh, Doug Jones is kind of one of the most famous. Well, if you're an old school fan, uh, Lon Chaney Sr. was... Yeah. You know, they Chaney called him the, master, the man of a thousand faces because the makeup was so good that you could never necessarily tell it was him, but he always managed to emote effectively no matter what you had over his face. You know what? And, and I would even add to that, to kind of, to kind of throw it back to something that's come up on Long Road to Ruin a couple of times, Mark and I have had the occasional disagreement about whether or not Johnny Depp could be called a good act. I argue, I argue yes, he can be when he wants to. But Mark also made a good point, and that is, is that subtlety has no meaning. Uh, you see him in so many roles where, uh, again, where it's him caked in, well, caked in makeup, and... The problem is, is he doesn't really know how to subtly act through it. It, it. It's like he feels like he constantly has to fight it, and he constantly has to be as overwhelmingly and egregiously over the top as possible, no matter what role he's playing. Uh, my ex fiance in one of her few lucid moments of sanity, uh, has kind of a, has kind of agreed with me a few times, despite her being a, a total depth nut hugger, and kind of finally admitted that for years now he's just been playing Jack, Captain Jack Sparrow with a palette swap. Yeah, um, it's, it's unfortunate yeah. too because if you watch the movies where he doesn't have to go through all of that makeup, I mean, I real my two favorite Johnny Depp roles I think are in Finding or in What's Eating Gilbert Grape and. Uh, Benny and June. Um, I, I would give you what's eating Gilbert Grape. I, I would give you that one. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about Benny and June because in that one you could almost argue he's playing the Mad Hatter without the makeup. Um, well, at the same time he was he was playing someone with you know some mental illness, which is different than someone like the Mad Hatter, who's a character written to be crazy. And I know. It's maybe an odd difference to point out, but it's one that kind of sticks with me. Uh, the, the one I the one I would actually say is I would say that uh, I would say for Secret Window. Um, I, I know a lot of people don't like it. A lot of people point out, oh, you can see the twist coming a mile away. Not about seeing the twist coming. I mean, yeah, you can kind of see it. I saw it when I first read the book. That's not the point. Right. Right. I but I still like Depp's performance. Yeah. Hey, uh, there's some there's some fun stuff there. Right, right. I just but, haven't seen but, the movie in too long. It, it slipped my mind. Oh, wait. Uh, oddly enough, I have that I have Four Past Midnight sitting on my desk here, so it probably should have sprung to mind earlier, but kind of coming back to, you know, it in those 20s when you first got the talkies, if you're, you know, a film historian, you had a lot of guys who knew how to act through makeup. And one of the important ones, I think, was, to transition away from Dracula here, when they cast Boris Karloff to be Frankenstein's monster. Because there was a guy who had very few speaking lines in the whole movie, 
and yet was so able to draw you in and make you feel what he's feeling. I mean, the scene to this day, the scene where he throws the little girl into the pond is heartbreaking, and it has never been adequately, you know, replicated, with maybe the sole exception of Peter Boyle sitting on the uh, teeter-totter and launching the girl into her house from <laughs> Young Frankenstein, but... <laughs> But speak, since we're just talking about the original, you know, Boris Karloff version, you know, you, you, one of the reasons I think you haven't seen a good Frankenstein movie in forever is you don't get a lot of guys who are comfortable, like you said, acting through the makeup, who can make it work to their advantage. You know, that's really the, that's really the funny thing if you compare Dracula to Frankenstein. When it comes to the Dracula movies, and I'm always big on pointing this out, best is different from favorite. Uh, oh, yeah. The the, the best Dracula movie of all time. Of all time. Okay, say what you will about the Hammer horror films and everything, and the many spoofs who have come since then, and even that unfortunate series that started with Dracula 2000. But the best Dracula is probably always, in fact, yeah, it's probably always going to be Todd Browning's original. Um, it's the iconic one, and and with good reason. However. My favorite of the Dracula movie? Well, that would probably Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola. Um, I just, I enjoy it tremendously, and it's so visually mesmerizing. And in places, it's even more true to the novel than Browning's movie was. Oh, much. It's much more, it oh, follows oh. the novel much more, much closer. It does change the character of Dracula a little, the character a little bit, but you get... But you get a lot cl- because they turned him into kind of a tragic romantic hero instead of blood-sucking villain in places. But such is kind of the perils of, of uh, you know, vampires being romanticized and whatnot. But yeah, you sure. get something that's a lot closer to kind of the source material in a lot of ways. Well, well sure. And but, you've got but you've also got nothing but greatness in the important roles. And I say the important roles because. Winona Ryder and Keanu Reeves are kind of take them or leave them, but you have Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins, so you know you can't. It's almost impossible to go wrong. And you know what? I would even praise it for the fact that, yeah, why, why lie? I'll come right out and say it. You, you managed to somehow drag pretty decent performances, kicking and screaming, out of Winona Ryder and Keanu. Give Francis Ford Coppola all the credit in the world for that. Oh yeah, I mean, um, it's it's to his credit that they're not a huge detriment to the film, right? Because now, they could on, easily have been. Now, on the other hand, then you've got Frankenstein, the first movie starring Boris Karloff, and you match that up against Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which starred Helena Bonham Carter, Robert De Niro, uh, Kenneth Branagh. So you've got yeah you've got two of Hollywood's most you've got a couple of really celebrated actors uh, a couple outstanding performers extremely versatile and then you've got Helen Bonham Carter um, and it was more it was actually more true to Mary Shelley's novel but nowhere near as enjoyable you know to be perfectly honest I don't find Mary Shelley's Frankenstein the novel all that engaging it's interesting and it's not bad by any stretch of the imagination 
And at times, it will tear your heart out. It's heartbreaking. But it needs to be done properly if you're going to follow the original format. And there was a lot with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that kind of missed the mark. Whereas with the original, you have something very different from the source material. I mean, in the source material, the creature is very intelligent. He speaks, reads the Bible, engages in philosophical debates with Victor Frankenstein, wants a companion. There's a lot of deep stuff within the novel and at places within Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that just deal with kind of the nature of what's happened. And with... Uh, the original Frankenstein, it goes in a different direction, and it become and it's still, I mean, like you said, it's more enjoyable in a lot of ways than the one that's closer to the novel. You know, you could almost, almost make the argument that between Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, it's almost like splitting Mary Shelley's novel into two separate... It is, in a lot, in a lot of ways it is. I mean, if you... Adjust the ending of Frankenstein and kind of the beginning of Bride of Frankenstein. They blend rather seamlessly together and make for a very... I mean, that's one of the best horror and horror sequels of all time. In that it manages to be scary, but at the same time, you have so much emotion invested in what's going on. I mean, like I said, the the monster throwing the poor innocent girl into the lake because he thinks that's what they're doing. Not because he's a horrifying creature who wishes death on anyone. It's just, oh, wait, we threw flowers into the thing. Now you go in the stream. And when you know, you pair that also with... Uh, remind me, was Boris Karloff the monster in, in Bride of Frankenstein as well? I think he was, but... Uh, you know what? I'm not really sure, but... Uh, I'll look it up. Uh, but you kind of go on with your point there. I'll find out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... <laughs> In a way, what I kind of compare it to is it's, it's kind of like how, if you look at the Godfather movies... Uh, uh, Boris Karloff is the monster in Bride of Frankenstein again, so... I thought so. I thought he was. Um, I'd just rather... But <laughs> if, if, if you look at the Godfather movies, it's, it's kind of similar in that um, we've got the first movie, which is kind of the... The, the meat, it, it's most of Mario Puzo's novels, narrative. And then in the second movie, you're telling the novel's flashbacks of, of Vito Corleone's rise to, pow- rise to power from you know, arriving from Italy up through um, his, uh, his first kill, first getting involved in organized crime, uh, meeting, uh, meeting Clemenza, and so on and so forth. Um, but in a weird way, yeah, you could you could kind of make the argument that Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein did it first, and he, and even that you could almost argue that Bride of Frankenstein is well, it just might be the first sequel to surpass its original movie. There is that argument to be made, and it's a pretty legitimate one in a lot of ways. Yeah. But uh, just kind of sticking with Frankenstein for a moment, you know, do you? Uh, I know we kind of wanted to talk about the classic movies, so if there's anything in particular from the first two, you know, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, that you want to talk about, by all means, do so. I'm just, I also was curious if, you know, as to your thoughts on why we can't seem to get a decent Frankenstein movie nowadays. You know, I, I don't really have a whole lot else to discuss about this one in 
this one in particular, although I'm sure something will come to me pretty shortly. But as to why we can't seem to get another good one, I think it's kind of for the same reason modern Hollywood couldn't get a Wolfman remake right. It's uh, it could, uh, because there was so much about that movie to enjoy. What, about the Wolfman remake? Yeah. Oh, uh, not a whole lot, because it was too buried and caked on CGI. I'm not saying everything was good about it, but I found a, I found a fair amount of enjoyable elements to it. But just on the whole, it faltered pretty badly. Well, but the fact is, is that these movies all came out at a time when people were a lot easier, just when they weren't quite so hung up on visuals, in part because film was still a relatively new medium. Well, especially uh, once you added... Vo- uh, you know, voice to it because you'd had some, you'd had a, a lot of silent films prior to this, but you hadn't. But having, you know, I mean, there were plenty of people. If you're a film buff, who thought, who laughed at the notion of who wants to hear act. They laughed. Like, who wants to hear an actor talk? <laughs> um, however, that being said, though, I mean, the the bonus you get from that is the fact that you had to get it done with story. You had to get it done with acting and. Hollywood nowadays, despite at least a handful of movies every year that prove otherwise, they just can't seem to get past that that fear of just trying to let a movie just tell us and just focusing on on that and not trying to get the scares across with uh with like I said, with with CGI, with Big, memorable, bloody gore effects, and unfortunately, that's had a trickle down effect. jump scare. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's had a trickle down effect because as as that approach has kind of gone by the wayside, there are fewer, 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 fewer actors who could really kind of carry that role off the way Boris Karloff is, um, who can like who can like we said act through the makeup, who can get it done through some subtlety. I mean, there, you know, there's a fair amount of prosthesis on the guy, and I don't yeah. know if he spent a lot of time with the makeup on in the mirror seeing how he had to move his face to get the makeup to move properly uh, so that it would look good on camera. Because, you know, sometimes when you, depending on the makeup, if you think you're smiling, it comes across as something completely different. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I mean Michael, Michael Chiklis had the famous story after shooting... Uh, the Fantastic Four movies that when he was in the thing, when he was in the prosthesis for the thing, his normal face looked like he was scowling. And everyone thought he was mad at them for the first day or so until he figured it out. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and two, of my, two of my favorite horror actors that I would point to as examples of somebody with the kind of skill that could, that one would need to really play Frankenstein in that way nowadays. Number one, as I mentioned, Roberting, because if you watch the first Nightmare on Elm Street, um, there's a difference between seeing him with that predatory smile on his face when he delivers the "This is God" line with yeah. with the claw versus just the "I am about to stab 51 flavors of hell into you" scowl at the end of the movie as he's creeping up on Nancy from behind. Um, There's the differences in the line delivery between, okay, again, 
you know, not to be redundant, but the okay, the this is God line versus I versus I'm your boyfriend now. Uh, that that's the ability to act through the makeup. On the other hand, the other one I would point to as somebody who's able to actually be an actor and get into the character, Tobin Bell in every single Saw movie. Yeah, that, I hands down. He's the only reason to watch some of the later Saw movies, is just to see what he's going to do, what they're going to do with him in flashback or whatnot. Uh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Uh, that's, you know, if, if, if you had to kind of, just kind of have some fun for a second. If you had to kind of put two people together, or put together the parts of the, the perfect actor to bring Frankenstein to life nowadays, since i, I got to admit, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't really feeling Robert De Niro's take. You weren't but, the only one. <laughs> no, I don't think anybody was. Um, Which is, I mean, again, De Niro, great actor, very versatile, very talented. Something about that movie just didn't mesh. Uh, no, no, no. Something, something was just a little bit off, and it's it's hard even now to really put your finger on on what it was. Um, but okay, so because the thing is. Is when it comes to Frankenstein, you kind of got to have a little bit of a physical presence too. Uh, Dracula was kind of easier to bring to life in a, re- in a remake because he's he's supposed to blend in like any other man. So uh, Gary Oldman, okay, different approach, but still works. You, you got a lot of people you can choose from: Gary Oldman, Christopher Lee, um, Bela Lugosi, and. The hell, even the guy who I didn't hate Gerard Butler as Dracula. Yeah, yeah, Gerard Butler. Okay, that's another good one. I um, didn't like Dracula 2000 all that much, but his portrayal of Dracula was not the issue. But okay, when it comes to Frankenstein, okay, so you need Robert England's ability to act through the makeup. Because obviously there's going to be lots of prosthetics, lots of makeup. Uh, you need Tobin Bell's ability to really be able to be thoughtful and get into a character, really give a character life. Physically speaking, as far as somebody who could kind of have that same that same physical menace as Boris Karloff, hey, see, now that's where I start getting stuck because you would need somebody... No, you know what? Actually, let's just go the obvious route with it. Uh, and in his prime, Kane Hodder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You You would almost need... Um, like, you almost need a stuntman, uh, someone who is physically different from a traditional actor to do the role. Uh, okay, th- there you go. Either I would say either Kane Hodder or, and this one's probably going to get some rolled eyes from people, but go with it here, Tyler Maine. I, 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 almost, I almost think he could work. Um, and he tends to be maybe a little more athletic, owing, you know, Obvious thing is obvious to his pro wrestling background, but okay. So, so there you go. If you combine, if you combine three of horror's greatest actors, uh, <laughs> you get a passable combine, Dracula nowadays. If if you combine Freddy Krueger, Jigsaw, and Jason Voorhees, you get Frankenstein. There we go. Oh, and just. As a brief aside, because we are t- um, since we're talking about Frankenstein, I do want to briefly touch on the glorious Mel Brooks Young Frankenstein movie, just just briefly, because I could go on and on about how awesome that movie. 
but it manages to kind of poke fun at every Frankenstein movie version ever. But one of the great things about that movie and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein in kind of the same way, the monsters are never made the butt of the joke necessarily. They're in funny situations, but they're never like mocked. And it's a very important line to kind of ride, especially in horror comedy, because if it goes the wrong way, it's not good. No, no. Um, I almost I almost wish we'd gotten to see Gene Wilder do a serious Dr. Frankenstein after watching him do the over-the-top young Frankenstein. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I'm imagining... I'm imagining the uh, the Tunnel of Horrors poem. From Willy Wonka? Yeah, from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And just kind of, ima- kind of imagining that kind of approach to Doctor. Actually... We could bring in... No, what, what you'd have to do is bring in Richard Pryor as the assistant. <laughs> oh, God, I can't wait until time travel becomes a thing and we can make this. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, it, it'll be awesome. Um, but... One of the things I like about that one is Peter Boyle, uh, the late, great Peter Boyle, his ability, we, we talk about acting through the makeup. He had a very different, he had like a physical prosthetic, I think, because he's a lot bigger in that than he is in real, it was in real life. But his, also his ability to emote without speaking, because his character was mute for a while. So all he had was grunts and what he could do with his face. And he elicited some of the biggest laughs from that entire movie. And it's, you know what? It, it really does depress me that there is an entire generation of people among whom there are probably more than a few who just know him as the dad from Everybody Loves Raymond. It is depressing, isn't it? Especially because I hate Everybody Loves Raymond so much. It's Oh, God, that's... Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's such a shame, though. It, it's such a shame because that's... That's another one where you kind of look at it and you almost kind of wonder, you know, what if he chose a different genre to act in? Yeah, it's well, you know, it's kind of like there's a bunch of people for whom Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon are just the guys from Grumpy Old Men. Still awesome, and I love those movies, but you know, you have to see what they can do as dramatic actors as well. And I mean, Jack Lemmon in his prime was as good as anyone ever. I mean, he, his range was incredible. Oh, Some Like It Hot is to this day one of my all-time favorite. Yeah, and when you can see he can do something from Some Like It Hot to Glen Gary, Glen Ross to again, Grumpy Old Men or The Odd Couple back in the day with Walter Matthau, just the amount of th- the range that he had was so incredible. Uh, incredible and, and really, really underappreciated. Yeah, he, wow. I'm glad we have... Forums like this where we can heap praise on people who deserve it who don't necessarily get it as much. But uh, moving moving forward, t- speaking of acting through the makeup, which is a big theme for a lot of these classic horror movies, when you get to The Wolfman, starring Lon Chaney Jr. as the poor Larry Talbot, his you know, he had the werewolf makeup in the original Wolfman movies was very different, remains very different from what we get in other werewolf movies. It, you didn't have the elongated snout that was kind of made popular in The Howling or the America, or An American Werewolf in London, those types of things. You had much more of an underbite than an overbite, and you had okay, just a lot of kind of, I mean, great prosthetics for the time, and in many ways they still hold up, but just 
very kind of difficult ones if you're going to act through them. And for him to still portray, even when he's in, you know, beast mode, when he's the were- when he is the Wolfman, there's still glimpses of, you know, humanity and what he's able to do with just his eyes. Is is absolutely amazing. I I, I love that you I love you throwing that oft overused Jim Frey's beast mode. Thanks. Well, 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 yeah. Well, no, actually, thanks to you. Now I'm going to have an urge to top that. And every time I watch this, every time a transformation scene comes up, I'm going to be thinking to myself, it's morphin' time. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a. Uh, and you know, personally, I'll probably always hear Deadpool doing it too, just because why not. <laughs> <laughs> because fucking Deadpool, that's why. Uh, well, brief aside, this is going to get it off topic here for just a minute. For anyone who plays the Facebook game Avengers Alliance, there's a heroic battle with which pits Wolverine against Deadpool and his friend, the Hydra minion, Bob. <laughs> and Deadpool's gimmick the whole time is, first of all, he's making Bob fight you. Anytime Bob gets close to death, he pulls out a laptop, hacks the server, and Bob comes back a little stronger. Until the final phase, when he busts out its morphin' time, Bob gets Deadpool's latest hacksaws and gains a bu- gains substantial Hydra power armor. All the while, me- all the while, Deadpool is not attacking you; he's eating tacos until you defeat Bob, and then he gets angry. But such is the awesomeness of Deadpool. <laughs> uh, Deadpool or like Deathstroke with a sin. But okay, kind of moving back towards the ori- especially the original Wolfman. I mean, there were a lot of sequels, because Lon Chaney Jr. was just so darn good as Larry Talbot. He acted through the makeup very well, and he also acted without it very well, which is another thing. Some guys are great when you get a prosthetic on them, but if you make them act to a camera without it, it's very difficult, and he was able to do both extraordinarily well. You know what? i got to admit, the werewolf genre is one that I really, really really wish would kind of make a comeback. Uh, and we'll, we'll correction, I wish it would make a comeback with some good movies. Yeah, I you know, I, I enjoyed elements of The Wolfman that was released a couple of years ago with Benicio Del Toro and Hugo Waving and Anthony Hopkins. But was it a good movie? No. Uh, I actually enjoyed... It won for either Best Visual Effects or Best Makeup at the Oscars. And... I really enjoyed the makeup job that they were able to do with uh, Benicio Del Toro. Not so much the CGI'd versions where he's jumping on rooftops and fighting CGI'd Anthony Hopkins as a werewolf and whatnot, but when you're able to just, you know, when they have practically applied werewolf makeup to him, I, I thought it was actually kind of impressive. It, it was, but... I, I, there's a lot of problems with that movie. No, I mean, the biggest problem being is that when I say I want to see a comeback of werewolf movies, I mean that I would love some movies like Ginger Snaps, the, the original Ginger Snaps, not two, um, The Howling, again, the original, not the sequels, um, uh, American Werewolf in um, American Werewolf London, in London. I think. London's the original, Paris is the, se- the <laughs> unnecessary sequel. Yeah, it's the same universe. Um, you know, a few years ago, there was a movie called uh, Curse that came out. Um, unfortunately, while it had kind of an original concept and a couple of pretty good moments, uh, it went through so much rewrites prior to it hitting theaters that what people eventually saw was just 
a butchered, ungodly mess of a movie. Just a, a terrible movie. So instead, I feel like we haven't really gotten a good werewolf in a long time. And no, it has been a while. Stupid enough to say it. Twilight does not count. Well, they're not werewolves. They're shapeshifters. They're yeah, they're they're shapeshifters who turn into big fluffy puppy dogs. They're skinwalkers. You know, they're not traditional werewolves. And there is a difference, folks. Right. And and in particular, what I want to see is I just I just want to see a movie that's got some things like an emphasis on more practical transformations rather than quite so much CGI. That's that's one of the amazing things about the Wolfman is obviously almost entirely, pretty much entirely practical. Yeah, I mean, uh, I love watching the transformations that go on in the original Wolfman because you can. I mean, even just from, like, a technical standpoint of watching how they layer the makeup for each scene so that it looks like a natural progression to the finished product. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, I don't know. Help help me out here, Robert. Why why can we not get a good werewolf? Uh, you know, if I had to guess, one, the concept is a little bit of a hard sell. And a lot of that is because it's a horror movie, but it deals with so much more than just, here, let's see how much blood and gore we can slam on the screen at any given moment because again when you watch going back to the original when you watch Lon Chaney Jr. acting as Larry Talbot you feel for his unfortunate cursed nature he's never going to get away from it he tries desperately he doesn't and you know if he's around people he's going to hurt them when a full moon comes around and it's just it's really tragic and it's such a difficult thing to get First of all, to get a script together that can adequately blend the tragic elements of that with you know the horror that goes on along with it as well. It's a it's kind of a tightrope to walk from just a directing or writing standpoint. Then you have to find the right actor to do the main role who can kind of again walk that fence, do both sides of it. And another issue is kind of the concept of the Wolfman and you know what it kind of means at its essence is transferred to other characters who, for one reason or another, are, you know, cursed or beleaguered or have some ability. I mean, if you want to get technical, I mean, the first Wolfman story is not actually the Wolfman. It's uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where it's brought on deliberately via chemicals as opposed to cursed and by a full moon, but the concept remains essentially the same. Fair point. And, And that notion of... You know, I've been cursed, so I, I mean, really, the Hulk's a werewolf, as far as that goes. Good point. And yeah, hey, Mark, I, I said it, the Hulk's a werewolf. I, you know what, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way, folks, but yeah, yeah, he's right, Hulk's a werewolf. And I mean, I, again, not in the traditional, you know, I turn into a wolf-human hybrid every full moon sense, but in the... I've been cursed with this horrible transformation that invariably causes untold amounts of pain and suffering to everyone around me, and I have no control of it, and I can't get rid of it, and I just kind of have to soldier on. And it's meshed with, you have the tragic element, meshed with Hulk smash stuff. And if you, you know, Mark has been on epic rants about why you can't, about how easy it should be to make a good Hulk movie. But if you want to, you know, why is it so hard to get a good werewolf movie? Same reason people can't seem to get a decent Hulk movie together, because you have a lot of the same issues with production and acting and distribution and the whole nine yards. And it's really sad because it shouldn't be difficult. I mean, The Wolfman is not a complicated story. It's not 
a long movie. It's a very simple story, but you know, again, simplicity seems to be the hardest thing to do sometimes because you can't hide your deficiency. Wait, I can't use quick cuts and shaky cam. I actually have to let a scene develop. What am I gonna do? Fuck this noise. I'll go back to shaky cam. Where's Michael Bay? <laughs> who? Uh, who recently was ha- apparently he's doing the Blade Runner prequel after he's done violating my childhood again with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We're handing him Blade Runner? The prequel, yeah. What I've heard. I don't know if it's official or anything, but that's, you know, that's out there. Some way, some fucking how, that's news to me. It's it's horrifically depressing. Why why do we need a Blade Runner? We don't. Same reason, again, it's, you no, know, okay. that's the... Let's, let, let, let me carry this... Let me carry this back to the Universal movies for a second. By all means. Okay. There, there, there's a question of why do we need a pre... That's one of the other things the Universal movies did really, really freaking well. The fact that they didn't feel the need to over-explain. We, we didn't need some kind of complex, convoluted explanation for absolutely everything under the sun. We don't need an epic story about how the where, the lycanthropy cl- curse came to be. It's here, and this poor guy deals with it. Yes, that's it. That, that, that's all we needed to know. That's, that's all any of us ever wanted to know. We never wanted any fucking thing else. Uh, they, they didn't feel the need to go backwards and act like it was going to be just an absolute mind-blowing revolutionary experience find out where all this stuff came from because that yeah, we don't need to see we don't need to see Dracula rising to power we don't need to see how he becomes a vampire we certainly don't need whole movies dedicated to it he's there Bela Lugosi plays him he wants to come to New York or America and wreak all kinds of havoc yeah you know there, there you fucking have it there there's your entire damn movie um but no not nowadays we have to head out all kinds of movies that are just, you know, to borrow to borrow the, uh, the the famous opening line from so many of my favorite Batman graphic novels. The opening chapter is so often who I am and how I came to be, um, which, don't get me wrong, I think is equally stupid that we always have to open a Batman story with the explanation of mother shoots parents, boy becomes vigilante to avenge parents. So, uh... Anyway, getting back to the remaining Universal movies, mm-hmm. um, I believe you wanted to talk about one of the rare instances of comedy and horror meshing, and that is the Abbott and Costello movie. Yeah, a little bit. Um, look, this is such a hard thing for me to kind of sell because it's kind of off topic, but I'm not a big fan of a lot of modern comedy. And again, this is a bit off topic here, but kind of bear with me. So. I because and for a variety of reasons. One, you know, it, some of it just dips too far into the vulgar, and it's just like you know why. But at the and a lot of that is because when I was a kid, young, I saw the Abbott and Costello routine. Who's on first? If you want, and not a redone, you know, don't watch a remake or someone else copying it. Go watch Abbott and Costello do it. It remains to me one of the funniest things I have ever seen, heard, experienced in my life. <laughs> and, you're, and you're able to do it without dipping into some of the stupid, like, shock comedy or you know, obscenity and you know, dirty jokes that you get a lot with 
contemporary comedy. And so when I hear that, I'm not a big fan. And one of the things that I love about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is, well, first of all, you have everyone. You actually get, like, the perfect cast for it because you get Bela Lugosi back as Dracula. You have Lon Chaney Jr. as Larry Talbot, the Wolfman. I think you get... I don't know if you get Boris Karloff back as the monster, but you get another talented actor for again to play the creature, and you mix that with with you know the comedic genius of Abbott and Costello being able to have funny situations around these serious characters without them ever becoming the butt of the joke. I mean, look, the Wolfman or the monster getting hit in the face with a pie diminishes them. Having them scare Abbott and Costello and one of them turns and gets hit in the face with a pie, that's much more entertaining and funny to me than if you, turn, if you take these great, serious characters and turn them into jokes. You know, it's, we, we always, we always got to remember, or I should say, folks, you've always got to remember, uh, Robert and I are home base what is largely a pro wrestling. So we, we often come back to comparisons like this. And that is, got to keep your heels strong. Otherwise, there's no reason to hate him, and there's really no re- no reason to fear him either. So, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, if if what you're doing is constantly hitting your heel in the face with pies, making your heel a bumbling idiot, well, then who's going to care about the heel person in the face? Because the heel's not a threat. Who's going to care to watch it? You got to keep that certain. Um, and so that. And in the first place, really, mixing horror and comedy, in my opinion, is always a dicey proposition. It gets you done won't... badly so many times, which, of course, makes when it's done right that much better. This is what killed the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise for so many. Yep. This is, you know what, for as much as confession time, kids, the big thing everybody loves about Nightmare on Elm Street, the one scene everybody loves, the most quotable one, the one that just makes everybody cream their pants every time they hear it, welcome to prime time, bitch. I hate that fucking line. I hate it because, to me, that is where jokey Freddy Krueger started. That is where it truly began, and that is where the series started going downhill. I don't think it's that great a line in the first place. Yeah. There. I said it. Come at me, bro. Complain at me. Don't but say that. I'm just being a stick in the... No. I fucking hate it, because everybody overblows that fucking line so many damn times. It's, it is the exact same thing that makes me hate the last 15 minutes of Hellraiser 3, because you have taken a menacing creature and turned him into just one big womp-womp. That's it. And that, to draw a comparison, that's what Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman or Abbott and Costello meet the Mummy. That's what they'll do well, is they keep them threatening. It's done just absolutely perfect. Um, the Wolfman gets to do what he does best. Abbott and Costello do what they do best. And neither feels out of care. Um, oh, God, just... Why does Hollywood have to make everything so much more complicated than it needs? I don't know, but, you know, speaking briefly about horror comedies, the last horror comedy movie I saw and enjoyed was probably Shaun of the Dead. Yeah. Although, 
Yeah. Although I haven't seen Warm Bodies yet, and I'm going to in the next couple of days, I think. And I'm I'm going into that with an open mind because it could be amusing to watch a kind of knock on the traditional horror slash rom com meetings. You know, I would I would kind of throw behind the mask the rise of Leslie Vernon in there. Yeah. Uh, as being pretty good. And actually, I also really enjoyed uh, Fido. I haven't seen Fido yet, but. It's, I just need to get around to it, but yeah, I've heard good things. I saw it a couple of years ago when it was still on Netflix, for instance. Um, it's one of those rare, actual, original takes on zombies. Uh, for, for those of you who haven't, the, the quick synopsis is there's it's, it's now a world wherein people and zombies can kind of coexist because they found a way to enslave the zombies and make them serve. Yeah. But they're, they're still targets of massive, massive prejudice. Um, kind of imagine you're subbing out blacks, in, blacks up through the 60s or so uh, for, you know, flesh-eating walks of dead, and there you have it. Um, but then you have a situation in which uh, one young boy takes up, a, uh, takes up a zombie as a pet and names him, obviously... Fido. And from there, it actually becomes, I've got to admit, yeah, yeah, it becomes fairly engaging. Um, but that's a rare, that's a rarity because it's not really trying to play it both ways either. It, it's not really trying to be, it's not really trying to be scary, it's just being a comedy. That, that, that's all there is to it. Yeah, um, and there is a difference between the blending of horror and comedy and having horror characters in comedic situations. Using a horror trope like zombies or vampires or whatnot as the background for comedy is not horror comedy. I don't consider Dracula dead and loving it. Great comedy. I enjoy it. I don't consider it horror comedy. It's a comedic spin on Dracula. You know what? Actually, I did just think of another one I could throw out there. Um, Oh, oh, what's the name of it? Now now I'm actually going to look it up. because it's something and something versus pure uh Oh, stars. Oh no, no, no! You're thi- oh, what you mean recently? Yeah. Oh, it's Tucker and Dale versus. Uh, yeah, yes, Tucker and. Yeah, you know what I was getting mixed up? I was getting um. Todd in the book of pure evil. Yeah, yeah, Tucker and Dale versus evil mixed up with I think it was Todd. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There it was. Um, that's another one that is that is pretty good, but it also never really tries that hard to do. Uh, which is, I don't know, do you think you could also kind of say the same thing about Cabin in the Woods? I don't consider Cabin in the Woods a comedy. It has comedic moments, but I don't consider it falling within that genre. Yeah, but, but not really scary enough to be... No, in the, in the traditional sense, no, but Cabin in the Woods is... That one might get its own, like, 30-minute show, because it's such an interesting movie to kind of look at and dissect. Well, because it's... <laughs> It's an interesting deconstruction, and I was, uh, again, I was talking to the ex-fiance the other day, and in, in one of the many one God's name are you smoking moments that comes up when I, that comes up when I talk to her, uh, she tried to claim that the ending sequence with the big old mishmash of, of all the horror monsters escaping containment okay. all at once. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Try to complain. Try to claim that, that was actually scary. I can understand into that category. I disagree. It's more. 
I mean, I disagree with that point, but I don't think it's necessarily invalid. If uh, Say what you will, but it's my opinion that if that legitimately scares you, you have got one of the lowest fear thresholds ever. Hey, people used to be scared. People used to be easier to scare. Used to be, yes, but this is a woman who was born two years after I... After I was grew up in the same period, in the same period, and uh, just turned 29. Really. Yeah, some people are just easy to. St- uh, the one that we haven't touched on yet, and I want—it's kind of an odd horror mo- it, story in the annals of horror, as far as this one goes. But I want to talk briefly about the mummy because uh, the thing ruined. I don't think he ruined it, but uh, ruined. The, 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 the reality is. And th- this is a point that's been made before, uh, specifically by, if, if you are on 411 Mania at all, one of my absolute have-to-read columns every week is A Bloody Good Time with Joseph Lee, who right. does a tremendous amount of work for the site, big horror buff. I thought I knew a lot about horror, and then I started reading his work and realized how much I didn't know. But he oh, had the interesting opinion that, you know, mummies are not scary. They were never all that scary, and, you know, turning it into an adventure story with you know, Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weiss and everything was you know, more or less a, a good move for it. And I kind of agree with that in the sense that the original Mummy movies, especially the Universal ones, weren't so much about the Mummy being scary. It was a lot more whoever was controlling them. And in that sense, it falls more into like the voodoo zombie type of genre or, you know, debatably even mind control because, again, you're reanimating the dead. You're just doing it with an Egyptian curse instead of Haitian voodoo. But you, I, I think for my money, the best part about the Mummy movies is um, Turhan Bey, who plays the seemingly always comes back from the dead magician who summons the Mummy to do his bidding. Yeah, yeah, I'd be, I'd be with you on that one. Um, I don't know. I guess, I guess I'm a little hard on it sometimes. Just because, well, the same reason almost anybody is, is the fact that Brendan Fraser is such a take-it-or-leave-it guy with me. Um, you know, I, it, it's kind of like, it's like sometimes he's trying to do a bad Harrison Ford knockoff. I won't say impression, but yeah, just, just that, just that, that it's a knockoff. Whereas, you know, he and Indiana Jones was able to kind of make those moves funny with, some subtle little moments and timing. He, he, he had that certain, he still had that certain Han Solo charm about it, but he was able to work it in kind of a subtle way. Um, Grimm, on the other hand, can be a little bit of a hand. Well, yeah, anyone who's been to as many movies with Pauly Shore as he has has a long way to come. That's true, but, but at the same time, what, what's so frustrating about it, and this goes for a lot of actors in a lot of genres, is sometimes you see somebody and you just, him perform a certain way, but you're seeing in something else, and you're just left to think, come on, you know better. Um, and, I thought that through case, all of the third mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Well, and in this case, I'm talking about when it comes to Brendan, comparing Brendan in The Mummy versus Brendan in Scrubs. Okay. Where, where he actually kind of shows a, little, shows a little bit of restraint and ability to actually not patently obnoxious. And then you kind of watch The Mummy, and sometimes it gets, it gets to be so jokey-jokey with me that it gets to be a little bit hard to take, even when it can be 
legitimately thrilling sometimes when it comes to some admittedly well-done special effects and some some top-notch action sequences and whatnot. My issue with The Mummy is it started that trend of I yell and my lower jaw goes, like, to the floor. Oh, God, yes. Did it ever. Oh, the director of The Mummy. Who was it? Was it, uh, is it Stephen Summers, or am I getting a director? Um, I want to say Summerfeld, something like that. Give me a no, second, I, I, I will find out. Where the one that you're thinking of was the one who was pretty much run out of Hollywood on a rail after making, uh, after making an making believe extraordinary gentleman. Yeah. Um, oh, it's uh, Stephen Sommers who did The Mummy. It was Stephen Sommers. Oh, okay. Okay, um, yeah, and, of course, he also did Van Helsing, which has serious... Oh, God, man. He did make... Well, that, uh, okay, now, uh, catch me up here. Did he make Did he make Van Helsing before or after he made Believe Extraordinary Gentleman? Because I know that... I know that that one is famous because that was... Oh, I don't think that, he made League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Uh, oh. No, he didn't. I mean, I'll find out. I'll find out who did, but it wasn't who did that one. No, he. Oh, most recently, Summers is responsible for the GI, the Scorpion King, and the GI Joe movie. Well, uh, which I don't know. If I'm based on rumors, I almost want to call him one for two on the GI Joe movies because while the mm. first one was terrible, I did hear that the second one was actually a vast, vast that that kind of showed some potential, but I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it either, which is rare. I'd normally tend to see my, I I tend to see uh, anything with the Rock in it. Um, Stephen Norrington directed League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Norrington, thank you. Um, Okay, you know what? And actually, I'm kind of glad. I'm kind of glad that that and Van Helsing came up because those are such great examples of why the Universal Team Up movies, which in some cases were almost as successful as their originals. At, at least sometimes, well, maybe not as successful, but seemingly damn near as fun. Oh, uh, for, you know, from a monetary standpoint, they did just fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I mean, kind of why those couldn't necessarily work nowadays. And part of that has to do with the fact that, again, they're proof of exactly what we're talking about. They tried to do team-up movies. Team-up movies that really should have been good, especially since... In the case of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, you were basing it off of a much beloved, widely popular graphic novel, and it was it was in a situation of, well, here you go, stories right here in front of you. Work has pretty much been done for you. All you got to do is just take it and find a way to bring a way to bring it to the big screen. Just find a way, essentially, just make it filmable. This is all we're asking. Instead, and apparently, and th- that becomes extraordinarily difficult at times. Yeah, it's for Hollywood, that, for, you know, for some reason. Okay, instead, I to recall, got instead was we got the movie that after Sean Connery made it, he pretty much decided, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, um, he's been in retirement since then. Yeah, uh, he, he, yeah. Um, I heard rumor he would consider coming out to replay uh, Henry Jones if they make a fifth Indiana Jones movie. If they made a fifth one? Because, you know, I seem to recall that he said something to that effect um, right around the time they were still bandying about making uh, the uh, making the fourth one. And then he, I seem to remember he changed his mind and said, you know what, on second thought, 
no, this retirement stuff's for me. I like this. It, it could be. I mean, that's one of the things where it kind of went back and forth. Um, uh, we Okay, so I'm just kind of curious. Your perspective on this, you know, all of modern horror, all of the horror genre owes a phenomenal debt to the success of the Universal Pictures when they came out and how successful they were. When you kind of think back on them, what what kind of stands out to you as what you like most about, collectively or individually? I like most about them. Well, collectively, I like the fact that I don't want to call them charming because that almost makes them sound kind of cutesy. Like, almost like I'm talking about a rom-com or something. Yeah. But I like the fact that there's something about them that people of almost any age can... Um, I mean, for younger people, it's... I mean, at least initially, there's a kind of a fun little nostalgia trip to, to hey, let's let, let's kind of see what all the fuss is. Um, and you can kind of get a different, fresh take on a lot of monsters that have been brought to life since then but never quite as successful. They're never quite as well-received. Um, for the older folks, it's, it's you know, a breather from what's, from what's become a form, and that is everything that's become so over the top that everything has to be so so digitized so and so big and sometimes so unnecessarily disturbing that you can just kind of go back to a simpler time when... Yeah, maybe you're not scared by it anymore, but you can still sit back and just enjoy the story. And they're so they're so accessible. I mean, they're they're movies you can put on at Halloween, and you don't have to worry about sending the kids to bed like you would if you were to sit down and try to watch something like like Saw or, or Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the Thirteenth or even most of the Halloween. Just they're, they're totally all included. Um, as far as the ones that stand out individually, actually, uh, my favorites are not only Dracula, but surprisingly, I really like the original Phantom of the Opera. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, the moment at the very end when Lon Chaney has a closed hand and holds it up and the mob backs off like, what's he got? And he opens his fist. He's kind of like, ha I got you before they swarm him. But it's so much of it is also in the fact that it's just, that's also such a beautiful overall story in terms of kind of um, how, how really personal it is. There's a, real, there's a real love story there. It's obviously something that was brought much more to life with Andrew Lloyd Webber's. But it, it's not just good scares. It's, that one's got good character. And it really and is it, an example of kind of making a monster sympathetic but doing it right. You're you're not taking the monster and making it sympathetic and doing it to somebody that really shouldn't be kind of like what the uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street remake did when at first they tried that that kind of that kind of sort of semi fake out where you kind of believe for a little bit that they really were going to actually try to sell you that Freddy Krueger was framed. You know we're going to get into that a lot more at a future date, I'm pretty sure. And we might even touch on it again uh, the 1st of November, the night a- the night after Thanksgiving, we'll be back and we give Freddy Krueger his own podcast. And I'm sure we'll mention it then. It Personally, when I first saw it, it bugged me. It became one of those things that when I actually started thinking about it, it bugged me less. And 
I'll get into that later, and you know, again, feel free to disagree. And when we get to Freddie, you and I are going to have some disagreements, I'm fairly sure. And that's you know not the end. That's not the end of the world to everybody out there. Sean and I are probably going to disagree. Neither of us yeah. cares that much. Well, the thing to keep in mind is that when it comes to the remake, my problem with it, and, and this this really has to be stressed because there is a difference, is and there is something I think to come back here with when it comes to when it comes to talking about uh, about characters, is the fact that my problem was never ever with um, Jackie Earl Haley as Freddy Krueger. No, I actually I, I actually want. love. Um, if you, if you weren't going to have Robert England do it again, he was absolutely the correct choice. Absolutely. I, honestly, I can't think of too many people better if you absolutely have to insist on doing that fucking remake um, than yeah, have, having Jackie Earl Haley. And I kind of thought that from the moment I thought about his casting and then I thought about him playing Rorschach, the way, the way he brought Rorschach to life, which is one yeah. of the better aspects of that movie. Um, and I kind of thought, okay, that really fits. But then I remember when I first, I even remember seeing the, the makeup test and thinking, okay, this looks good. I'm actually, against my better judgment, starting to have hope for this. Then I saw the trailer, and I saw him running in fear from the angry mob, and it was one line that gave me misgiving. I didn't do anything! Well, yeah, okay, okay we'll get oh. to that whole thing in much more depth. Both when we talk about Freddy and during the inevitable Nightmare on Elm Street podcast on the long road to ruin. Yeah. Well, but there's a point that I am getting that I am getting to. Okay. And that is that, and a lot of horror movies get this wrong. They try to find a way to make you feel sorry for pretty much utterly despicable character, people that you shouldn't feel sorry feel sorry for, and they do that because. Um, it just so happened that at one point, uh, yes, audiences kind of turned around and decided they liked Freddy Krueger, they liked Jason Voorhees, they wanted to they wanted to root for the monster. So then Hollywood started trying to do it intentionally, and it always comes off as forced. It always does. On the other hand, in the classic Phantom of the Opera, the more you get to know the know the monster, the more you really do start to feel for it. And that's where, in a sense, yeah, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical kind of gets it right. That's one of the things that makes it so compelling. It's one of the things that makes it so powerful. Well, um, knowing more about the Phantom lets you understand kind of where he's coming from, but it doesn't change the fact that he's still killing people, and that's still, you know, not a good thing. No, no, not at all. And I mean, I maintain that when, in the second Saw movie, when you understand where Jigsaw's coming from is one of the best ways that's ever been done, because you take a very fearsome character, a very disturbed character, you let everyone know where he's coming from, but he never becomes, oh no, I want to see Jigsaw win. Oh, no, 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 no. No. You're still always reminded that he's still terrorizing, well, maybe not entirely innocent people, but even if they're flawed, there's still people who haven't warranted anything resembling what he... No, yeah, I mean, I have people, you know, I'm aware of people who have been drug addicts. I don't think they should be made to crawl around in syringes to find a key to cure them of their issue. Right, exactly. 
Um, and we won't even get into the sixth movie, which is basically one big bitch fest about the American healthcare. Yeah. Uh, uh... I'm sorry. I don't care how much you, how much you hate health insurance claims adjusters. Nobody has earned that. Well, people who have earned it are not health insurance claims. Well, okay, yeah, I see what you did there. Yeah, point taken. Um, no, I, I, I've certainly never met one that met one that deserves it. But uh, me yeah, either. Like, like you said, it's the nail right on the head. You're, you're always reminded these are still bad people. You know, the Wolfman uh, is a tragic figure, but he's still ripping people's throats out, and you have to do something about that. You know, the monster is yeah. not malicious, but he threw this poor girl into a pond, and she died. You know, the, the monster cannot always be King Kong. No, in fact, sometimes it's better when it's not. There's nothing wrong with King Ghidorah, people. <laughs> Second kind of with kaiju references there. All right, that, that pretty much sums up all the ones I wanted to talk about. Any others that spring to your mind? You know what? I think he pretty much ran the whole gamut as far as all these wonderful movies go. Uh, obviously, there's there's more of them out there. Um, remind me, was was Creature from the Black Lagoon, was that RKO or was that uh, Universal? That might have been Universal. I can't. I think it was Universal. I couldn't swear to it off the top of my head, but I mean, it wouldn't shock one, me if it was one of the one of the lesser known uh, monster movies, or maybe simply just lesser appreciated. Yeah, sure, maybe, but even that one's still fun. Uh, by all means, and, and yeah, and these are so accessible. I, I'm pretty sure that a number of these are are available. Anyone the can watch them and appreciate them. Yeah, well, you know, and, you, and, and, like you said before, of, you don't have to worry about scaring the kids. You know, yeah. I would feel in a lot of ways perfectly comfortable with you know a ten year old watching Dracula. Yeah. Sure. I mean, in an ideal situation, if it were to be you, me, and Mark getting together um, for a Hall- for a Halloween party, these would be the kind of things where Melissa probably wouldn't feel wouldn't feel the need to go bugger off and do something else because she didn't want to be scared or gross out of out of her wits. And hell, you could probably even let adorable little Lily sit in. And get in on the fun too. Um, yeah, you, you know, no. I, I don't know how much, you. It's feasible. It's not out. It's not beyond the realm of reality for that situation to happen. You know what? Knowing knowing Mark, you have to remember, folks. Mark is the guy that taught Lily to chant Cody's mustache. Yep. So for all I know, that kid is being raised right. Them good geek parenting right there. Um, but the point being, I mean, and, and most of these movies are, most of them are now available on Netflix, for instance, and several of them, uh, I want to say especially Dracula, I believe are even public domain. Uh, the character of Dracula is public domain. I'm not sure if the film is. I, I could swear, I could just about swear that, that the original Dracula is, uh, is actually now in the public domain. It could very well be. I'll have to do some more research and figure that out for sure. All right, so any plugs you want to get in before we wrap this thing up? Oh, just a couple quick ones. As we mentioned already, please, folks, don't make me suffer for nothing. Tuesday night, 6 p.m. Mountain Time, Long Road to Ruin, Hellraiser Part 2, The Bat Movie. And, yeah, there's there's a lot of them. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of them, but you know what? Let's face it, for the most part, if you've seen this entire franchise, 
you know you're only tuning in to hear what I have to say about two of them. Yeah, and you can listen to me defend elements of some of the other one, which is always amusing. There are elements of some of the movies that are perfectly defensible. And chances are, I'll join right in with you. I might disagree about how defensible they are, but I'll agree with you that there there are some parts that make some of them watchable. Sure, sure, I'll uh, I'll play along with that. So we get to 8 and 9, in which case all bets are off. No, but I feel perfectly fine about the fact that by the time we get to 8 and 9, the nerve rage is going to be flowing so damn strong. You know, I actually bothered to go on to Netflix and actually take a look at some of the user television <laughs> uh, <laughs> 9. I couldn't believe it. I actually found a few that rated it three stars. Wow. Very few. And you got to get past a few pages of one-star reviews before you get to them. But, oh, they're there. There are people who gave that movie three snowflakes. Uh, well, we, we will explain uh, to them where their logic falls short this coming what, Tuesday in, in great what, detail. What is your basis for fucking comparison? Did, did, did somebody clockwork orange your ass to a chair and make you watch 48 hours of Monstered? And you even just, then. And, no, even then. Yeah, even then. I will take Cop on a Bullhorn singing about the shit your pants dance and random guy screaming a Spartan war cry at his clogged toilet as he plunges it with the vigor over ever, ever having to watch Lance Henriksen's soul being crushed by Hell World or, for that matter, the infinite, the infinite number of things we're going to find wrong with Part 9. And but, yes, infinite um, is a, a very near-accurate <laughs> word description right there. There's a lot. For all I know, Peter Jackson could probably cobble together an extended cut of this podcast with everything we really find wrong about it before we run out of time there. But yes, please, by all means, tune in. But before you do that, tune in to talk about to hear me talk about things I like. Um, every every late Sunday night slash early Monday morning, depending on when you check the site, I can be found over in the 411 Mania Music Zone with my album retrospective column, Give Life Back to Music. Uh, we wrapped John Mayer up last week um, at the request of certain editorial higher-ups, not you, Jeremy Thomas, you're cool, um, who apparently don't like my selection of art artists because they don't consider them traffic friendly. So instead, since I've now been bitched at about something not being within our demographic, uh, I'm going to go from talking about John Mayer to talking about Johnny Cash's last five albums. So tune in Sunday night for the start, for the start of that. Um, otherwise, that's really about it. I actually enjoy Johnny Cash. Uh, well, so do I. I enjoy all the artists that I cover. That's the point. But, yeah. you know... My my I, biggest gripe with Johnny Cash, two things. First of all, having to listen to Joaquin Phoenix try and sing on uh, Walk the Line, and the fact that I got a bunch of crappy country music artists added to my list on Pandora when I added Johnny Cash. Yeah, well, originally my original choice... My original choice was I, I had a fun, fascinating little retrospective on the Dixie Chicks plan. Um, however... Ah, oh, I thought you were joking before so, when you said the Dixie Chicks. You know what? Ah, sheesh. Some people just don't read my comment section. See, 
see how much people actually like the way I write. No. No, I, I just no. Meant, I thought you were joking about the Dixie Chicks. I, mean, I might have 86 that, too. No, y- y- you know what? I mean, my my whole point of this was kind of examine why why fans love the music that they do and what's really so fascinating about music in general and doing it via a wide open look at the artists that that I love, the ones that captivate me, the ones that really mean the most to me along the way. And it's a column that I have to say has really, for the most part, gone over astonishingly well since I started writing it. Uh, it's always I, nice I, to be. It's always nice to be surprised in the good way. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I actually get comments now as opposed to when I, I wrote ours, actually making a point to tell me how much they enjoy the series, particularly how much people enjoyed hearing me spend however many words per week I did uh, talking about John Mayer. But then last week, and you can consider this my Ric Flair, woo, but go ahead and fire me moment. I'm already fired. <laughs> or, or, well, I'm not already fired, but or depending on how much you may love me or hate me, my CM Punk style pipe would be pipe bomb. Um, then I go and get feedback handed down to that well our audience doesn't really care about doesn't care about John. I thought somebody our our audience likes. So uh, you know what? You should do you should do what the actors do. You do one for the studio and then one for yourself. You know what? You you make Fuck. the big budget mindless blockbuster, then you can do you know, Citizen Kane. <laughs> No, fuck that. Because the whole reason why I left the, why I left doing the three R's and proposed this column idea was because I wanted to bring something different to the site, um, something that maybe puts a little bit more of a focus on content and maybe tries to earn traffic by winning people over with good content, rather than just taking the cheap route and pandering to how many people will blindly click on something just because they typed Miley Cyrus or Lil Wayne into Google. Um, and well, I'm going to... Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, it, it's maybe a fine I'll line. And you know what? And maybe I'll play ball just a little bit, but at the same time, no. No, you know what? If this isn't really something I'm writing for, I'm writing for management or even I'm writing necessarily for the audience. It's something that I'm writing more for my own satisfaction, and it just happens that people seem to like it. So if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out on my trip, and that means that I'm going to go out really approaching this subject the way I feel it deserves to be approached and with the kind of quality that I feel for one one's audience and that they've kind of been held back from as the site sometimes goes in a direction that I'm not exactly so. Well, yeah. You know, management has their own concerns and issues, and uh, it's one of my curses because I tend to always view things in the metal. I can see both sides, so I do feel for you. Just let me put it out there. I do feel for you as, and I, you know, I very much enjoyed your look at John Mayer and, you know, whatever, whoever you do it on, hopefully you do continue to bring the same quality because I found it very enjoyable. You know what? I'm going to right up until somebody who's higher in pay, in pay grade than, than I am or probably, or probably than even Jeremy, um, hands it down that says, yeah, no more. We don't want you on our site any longer. Um, I mean, maybe I'll maybe I'll get cut a little bit of a break because I'm told there may be some shuffling of who kind of headlines the music zone 
on the night when I write my column, and that might free me up a little bit more, as I'm not going to be expected to carry the traffic. But, you know, I I made the comparison when venting my frustration about this the other day. Um, I'm not the I am not the Hulk Hogan of the site. I'm not the Ultimate Warrior of the site. I'm not the Randy Savage of the site. I'm not the John C- uh, Quite frankly, if I have to make a comparison of anything, I like to think that maybe I'm the low-rent Ricky Steamboat or Bret Hart of the site. I'm, I'm not the guy who's getting over with 20 minutes of pandering and pandering and posing and pushing and shilling for the cheap pops. I'm the guy who's going out there and trying to just put on the best actual content, tell the best story on the site. And uh, if, if that's my role, hey, I'm fine with that. I, I, I'd rather be that than A.J. Gray. you, you got to feel bad for that guy in some respects. <laughs> No, I don't. If he's a grown, if he's a grown adult to write for a site like this, and he's got all the literacy of a junior high kid, no, that's his fault. Uh, all right, all right. Let, let's wrap this up. Um, all right, let me get my quick plugs in here. Um, every Friday, you can find me in the MMA zone of 411mania.com. I write Locked in the Guillotine, which is an MMA news site that also reviews and previews fight cards. I have a long look at the upcoming fight between Cain Velasquez and Junior Dos Santos up right now. I hope it's informative and enjoyable. And uh, I will be on the 411 Ground and Pound show 9 p.m. Sunday. Uh, I think I will be this Sunday. I hope so. To review UFC 166 in fine form with Mark Radulich, Pat Mullen, and Jer- and uh, Jeff Harris. Sorry. You know, the if it's only kind of gives you your due for a second, um, along with 411 MMA, and I say this not just because he's kind enough to have me a guest on the show, but really, if there are any people on that site to prove that the wrong people are actually getting paid to write about MMA, it's you and Samer. Well, Samer just barely returned to that status after Jeremy dumped him, so. Well, yeah, but. <laughs> I, I kid, I kid. I mean, hey, Sa- well, look, Samer Cotty is the reason I started writing in the MMA zone. I was a huge fan of the Rear Naked column. When the advertisement came up right for 411, I figured, you know, why not? I, you know, hopefully, you know, I like the sport. Hopefully I can bring a little something to the table. And I wound up getting his spot because he was leaving for five ounces of pain at the time. And that kind of depressed me a little bit, but you know, he's back on our site now, and I'm happy. And I've had him here a couple of times. And I just, you know, I love reading his work. To it's it's wonderful. It's some of the best stuff I, out there. I know how you feel. I know how you feel because actually, if I had to boil it down to three people that I had to say were really big influences for me, for well, number one, getting my foot in the door, and number two, making me want to write insight and podcast. Um, aside from obviously uh, Larry Zonka bringing me on board and giving me a spot, uh, a huge credit probably, to Larry. Yeah, yeah, gotta give. Well, Larry's a good guy. I like Larry. Um, uh, which is why Larry, if you happen to listen to this, know that none of the preceding rant whatsoever is directed at not a single iota. Um, but really, if I had to narrow it down to just a handful of people, it would be uh, probably a combination of Ari Bernstein, Sammer, and Lambert. Yeah, it's so. it, it's always fun to look back and see, you know, guys who helped get you into, especially a site like four one one that's so. You know, we're very content-driven, and we all volunteer our time. No, Very few people who write on the site get paid for it. Oh, we yeah. We do it because yes, we I, enjoy it. 
Yeah, I had a conversation on the Ask 411 uh, comment section about that about that the other day that I can't believe didn't get me kicked off the site, actually. Um, it was an option for more people complaining about uh, Justin Washer, mm. which, is, which is always it. Um, you know, he's a guy I feel bad for because... Just because Matthew Forsina, who did ask who did ask four one one wrestling for ages and was the he was one of the must read articles every week when he did ask four one one wrestling he was just that good at it and sure. when you take over the same column from a guy that great at it you know you're just never gonna it's it's never you're always gonna get flack yeah but you know what. There's a difference between there's a difference between having a Doctor Who like scenario where you're perfectly capable but you're just getting momentarily shit on because you're not the guy we're used to. There's a difference between that and not being liked because you're excessively snarky to your audience. Yeah, that, that, that's that's what, where, yeah. that's where this people on the internet not liking excessive snark. <laughs> uh, yeah, irony abounds. I. I know they do. I know. But at some point, it's also easy to get fed up with. Yeah. All right. Well, lest we, you know, keep going far too long, um, a quick plug for next week on Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. I went back and forth on what we were going to do for next week's show because the one after that is going to be Freddy. I just wasn't sure about next week. I want to do probably either uh, some kind of a combination of lesser-known horror movies, uh, bad horror movies that you uh, from Halloween, not the franchise, but just this time of year that you, you know, just some of the ones that we like that we just haven't really talked about and some of the and the fun stuff that goes along with that. So I hope you'll rejoin me for that one, Sean, and I don't know if I'll open it up to calls or not just because that's kind of a topic that you could get a lot of people's input on and be better off for it, but... I hope you'll be back for next week when we – it could be that. I might change it between now and then if something better comes across, so stay tuned for updates as far as that goes. And then, again, two weeks from tonight, Sean will be back, and he and I will look at Freddy, Freddy Krueger, and that will wrap up a horror-themed month here on Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, and we'll move into Thanksgiving and into Christmas, and we'll just see how things go from there. Oh, hey, I'm, I'm totally on board with that topic. Absolutely. All right, so Sean will be back next week. I'll still be here next week, and I hope you'll all join us again, either live or at your own at your earliest convenience. So for Sean Comer, who is just awesome and continues to bring interesting stuff to the table, and for myself, Robert Winfrey, I will leave you with wonderful words of Al Pacino, and I will say again, just appreciate the darkness, folks, because it makes the light bright. So say good night to the bad guys.